are going to discuss, we might end up libeling public opinion, the, uh, we're going to have a panel on public opinion, and that's been implicit in something of some of what we've already done. It's been mentioned a couple of times. Uh, the, the truth is that when American political scientists started looking at public opinion some 60 years ago, that is in a systematic, regular way in which you were doing polls all the time, there were many things that were surprising and mostly discouraging. They had a series of expectations about democratic citizenship and the kinds of uh, the people that voters would be knowledgeable, that they would have views that supported the basic uh, system of liberal government. And what they found was that, well, that was a complicated story at best. And in some ways, support uh, for the First Amendment, as I said uh, this morning, in theory was quite strong, but in applications, not so much. So we're going to return to those kinds of issues today with a new polling, a new poll done specifically by my colleague, Emily Eakins, who is a research fellow and director of polling here at the Cato Institute. Her research focuses on public opinion, American politics, political psychology, and social movements. She leads the Cato Institute project on public opinion, which she designs and conducts national public opinion surveys and experiments. She's also done polling and analysis uh, uh, that resulted in a publication, Policing in America, Understanding Public Attitudes Toward the Police, uh, and also The Libertarian Roots of the Tea Party, and Public Attitudes Toward Federalism, The Public's Preference for Renewed Federalism. Before joining Cato, she spent four years as a director of polling for the Reason Foundation, uh, in 2014, Emily authored an in-depth study of young Americans, one of the leading ones still in that area. Uh, it was entitled Millennials, the Politically Unclaimed Generation. Uh, prior to joining uh, Reason, she worked several places, a research associate at Harvard Business School, where she co-authored several Harvard Business case studies and helped design and conduct research experiments and surveys. She's discussed her uh, work in a wide variety of the leading venues in, in uh, American politics, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and so on. She's an active member of the American Association of Public Opinion Research and the American Political Science Association. She holds a PhD and MA in political science from the University of California at Los Angeles. Emily? Thank you very much, John. If we could, perfect. Thank you very much. So I'm really excited to share with you today some new results from the Cato 2017 Free Speech and Tolerance Survey. So you're some of the first folks to, to see some of these results. But I wanted to start out with by giving you a little bit of context about why we conducted this survey. So a lot of surveys out there that have been conducted you know, for the past 50 years or so find that most Ameri oh, an overwhelming number of Americans think that free speech is a great thing in America. They support free speech. They support the First Amendment. Even if they don't know what's in it, they like uh, free speech. But we oftentimes find that it turns into free speech for me, but not for thee. And so we wanted to delve a little bit deeper and get specific and find out what types of speech um, are Americans willing to tolerate and how consistent are they? So for instance, Republicans have become more concerned about um, censorship on college campuses. Um, but what we wanted to know is would they be willing to tolerate forms of political expression that they personally found offensive, like flag burning? 
in the survey we ask. Um, we also wanted to go beyond just what types of speech um, should be legal or illegal, but what types of speech should be tolerated in the social sphere? Uh, for what types of speech should someone lose their job and have their um, livelihood taken from them if they believe a certain thing? Um, the, there have been a, a variety of uh, recent firings in recent years um, for people who expressed ideas that, many, that some people found highly offensive. For instance, um, an engineer at Google who authored a memo um, that tried to explain why there might be more men than more male than female uh, engineers in Silicon Valley. So um, for these reasons, we decided to cut, conduct this survey. There's a lot here, so I'm only going to be able to share, with, share some of the results with you. Um, we partnered with YouGov to conduct the survey, a nationally representative sample of US adults. We um, interviewed 2,300 individuals for this survey. And I'm going to just dive right on in. So at a high level, we find that most Americans oppose government banning um, or prohibiting uh, hate speech in public. So most people think that people should be allowed to express unpopular opinions in public, even those that are deeply offensive to other people. A non-insignificant minority, 40%, favor government preventing people from engaging in hate speech against certain groups in public. So most people oppose banning hate speech. But we also found that nearly 80% of Americans say that hate speech is still morally unacceptable. And when you put these two things together, this demonstrates that Americans do make a distinction between speech being allowed, but that not necessarily meaning that that speech is, is, is good or moral to engage in. We also wanted to get more specific. Hate speech against who? What types of groups should we have hate speech laws about? Um, overall, Americans opposed banning hate speech for any of the groups that we asked about on the survey, which you see up here. There's a lot. Um, but we did find some interesting differences between Democrats and Republicans. We find that Demo a majority of Democrats uh, support um, banning hate speech against African Americans and Jewish Americans. And then overall, on average, Democrats are more likely to support hate speech laws than Republicans. Republicans actually hovered. I was actually expecting to see a little bit more variety among Republicans, but we didn't see that. It was about 3 in 10. But relatively more supported hate speech protections for the military and police. Among Democrats, it was more for specific groups. And we also looked among specific racial and ethnic groups. We find that African Americans are more likely to uh, support banning hate speech against African Americans, that Hispanics are more likely to support banning hate speech against Hispanics, and that whites were more likely to support banning hate speech against African Americans. Overall, though, um, black and Hispanic Americans were more likely to support hate speech protections for all of the racial groups compared uh, to white Americans. We wanted to get specific and find out, well, how do you define hate speech? It's one thing to say that hate speech should be allowed or not allowed, but what are we at, what's the content of the speech that we're talking about? So we asked about a variety of things that people might say. Um, and these first three here that are highlighted in green, we found majorities of Americans believe um, are hate speech, that these are hateful things to say. Um, the latter two, though, we did not find a, a, a person who says a transgender people have a mental disorder or a person calling a, a woman a vulgar 
her name, we did not find majorities thought that that was hate speech. Um, I think that this helps explain a little bit of what, we're, what, what, uh, what happened at UC Berkeley when um, well-known conservative commentator Ben Shapiro was going to give a speech there earlier this month, and students threatened to get violent. Um, ben Shapiro has repeatedly shared his opinion, and his opinion is that transgender individuals have a mental disorder. Um, if you look at the differences between liberals and conservatives, 60% um, of liberals find this to be hate speech compared to only 17% of conservatives. So for what one person is just an opinion, to another is on the level of hate speech. And I think that this helps us understand um, how people are reacting so differently to different ideas. And then what, you, what we also find here is that uh, liberals were more likely than conservatives to find um, these things that people might say um, to categorize them as hate speech. We also looked at what people thought was offensive. Um, this combines hate uh, speech that people thought was offensive and hateful. Um, and again, we see that liberals are about um, twice as likely as, conservative in many, as conservatives in many cases to believe that all these things are offensive. And I'd, want, I'd like to draw your attention to one in particular, a person who says that illegal immigrants should be deported. This is something that um, a minority of Republicans, but still a non-insignificant minority of Republicans, share this policy view. And the President of the United States has repeatedly said this, or at least throughout the campaign trail he said this. Um, what's so interesting is that for liberals, 80% find this highly offensive or hateful, whereas 36% of conservatives would agree. So for what one person is just a policy position, for another person is highly, highly offensive. I think the differences in intensities and in how people view different types of speech help us understand, perhaps, um, the willingness to resort to violence. We found that um, a slim majority, 51% of very liberal respondents, said that they thought it was morally acceptable to punch a Nazi in the face. Um, this is considerably higher than, the, than most Americans. 32% felt that it was morally acceptable and more than um, strong conservatives. So we've talked about what speech people think should not be allowed. What about requiring certain types of speech? Um, a couple of cities throughout the country have uh, passed laws regarding transgender pronouns, like the city of New York. Um, so we wanted to know what people thought about this. We found that a slim majority of Democrats, 51%, favor a law that would require people refer to transgender individuals using that person's preferred gender pronouns rather than their biological sex. Um, Far fewer, 21% of Republicans agree. So you can see this is a, could be a major source of conflict um, if more cities pursue these types of laws. This is also out of step with what most Americans would think. 62% of Americans would oppose this kind of um, pronoun law. So I've shown you a lot of examples where we found that Democrats were more likely than Republicans to find speech offensive or, and whatnot. Um, here, tables have turned. This is what Republicans find offensive. 53% of Republicans say that Americans who burn the US flag should be stripped of their US citizenship. So this is actually in line with what President Trump tweeted right after the election. Um, I'm not sure if that had something to do with these results. I suspect this is probably what we would have found regardless. Um, but it's wildly out of step with what most Americans think. 61% would oppose stripping someone's citizenship because they burned the flag. 
And it's not because people support flag burning. A lot of polls find that people don't like flag burning, but the question is actually stripping someone's citizenship for doing it. We also found that 47% of Republicans would favor a ban on the building of mosques in their community out of step with what most Americans think, 69% would oppose such a law. We also found, I don't have a slide, we also found that Republicans were more like, or excuse me, two thirds of Republicans supported a ban on face coverings in public spaces, um, also out of line with what most Americans would think. So given how campus speech has been in the news, of course, we had to include a bunch of questions on campus speech issues. At a high level, we find that most Americans overall and college students themselves agree that it is more important for colleges to um, expose students to all different types of viewpoints, even if they are offensive or biased against certain groups. About a, th a little more than a third say that colleges should prohibit offensive speech on campus that is biased towards certain groups. But then we delve a little bit deeper and get specific. <laughs> and we, um, so what we, in what we did here is we asked people about the college or university they attended. So this is among people who have attended college, graduated from college, or have some kind of college experience. And we asked them if a speaker were to be invited to give a speech at their college, should that person be allowed to speak or not? Um, and I don't mean to inundate you with too many numbers on the screen, but what I want you to notice is that about half or more in most of these scenarios, about half of Americans oppose colleges allowing a wide variety of ideas to be expressed. Um, I thought the um, college students might be different in answering this question. They weren't. They were about the same. So again, about on almost anything you could, um, so these particular examples that we included, many of them were specific speakers that had been protested or someone had been upset about, um, and you get about half that would oppose. I wanna draw your attention to, again, here, 41% um, would not want um, a person who says that all illegal immigrants should be deported to speak on their campus. So that would probably mean President Trump. And then also these two we find that about half of Americans wouldn't want a speaker on their college campus who publicly criticizes or disrespects the police, but also about half would oppose a speaker who defends the police and tries to justify their stopping rates. I would argue that having a productive conversation about police reform when you have banned both the criticizers, the critics, and the defenders of the police to be very difficult. We found some really striking differences between um, Democrats and Republicans and how they felt about all of these speakers on their campuses. We found that Democrats were more likely to think that these speakers should not be allowed to speak on their college campus than Republicans. And we, part of the reason why might be this. We found that about two-thirds of Democrats say that colleges have an obligation to protect students from speech and ideas that could create a difficult learning environment. Um, and as you can imagine, this creates quite um, a conflict because originally we found that most people thought colleges need to expose students to lots of different viewpoints, so long as none of them are offensive and create a difficult learning environment. And that therein creates the conflict that we're seeing on a lot of college campuses today. 
So in several instances, we've seen high-profile speakers have their speeches shut down on college campuses um, because the students are disruptive and in some cases have gotten violent. Um, and in some cases, universities have said, we are going to disinvite the speaker because students have threatened to get violent. Well, as it turns out, most Americans, 58%, actually agree with these college administrators. They say that colleges should cancel controversial sp speakers if the students threaten to get violent unless they get their way. 74% um, of Democrats support this. Um, a little less than half of Republicans agree. Most Republicans say um, colleges should still um, have the speakers speak. That being said, though, most people still think that universities should discipline students who shut down speakers, either forcibly or by you know, shouting loudly. Um, most think that they should be disciplined. Republicans are far more likely than Democrats to think this. However, when we delved a little bit deeper to find out how they should be disciplined, there were some pretty significant differences. So Democrats were more likely to say that universities should listen to the students' concerns and give them a warning. Republicans were more likely to say universities should suspend them, expel them, or send them to jail. So what about offensive ideas in the workplace, or ideas that people find offensive in the workplace? Here we find NFL players. This has been in the news quite a bit this week, given President Trump's tweets. 65% of Republicans say that NFL players who refuse to stand for the national anthem should be fired. This is wildly out of step with what most Americans think. 61% say that players should not be fired for refusing to stand. So again, I think you're probably seeing a pattern here where both Democrats and Republicans have things that they find highly offensive and they're willing to use some sort of punishment um, against those who use the offensive languages or, or ideas. What about social media accounts? Here we found that a majority of Democrats say that employers should discipline um, employees who post offensive or controversial opinions on their personal social media accounts like Facebook. This is out of step with what most Americans think. 53% say that you should not discipline employees for what they write on Facebook or other social media accounts. And here just was kind of a brief breakdown by party ID. We did find for most of these, well, I was a little bit surprised. I would have thought that there were a few beliefs that, ex that business executives could have that would get them fired. But we didn't find majority support for any of these ideas that we tested to, to fire uh, business executives. Um, but we did find differences by partisan identification. Um, Democrats tended to be more likely than Republicans to support um, firing business executives who have these ideas, but still majorities didn't support most of them. With one exception, Republicans support firing an employee who burns an American flag as part of a political protest. We're starting to see a pattern, like flags, very important to Republicans. Um, Self-censorship. Most people say that the political climate today prevents them from saying things they believe because others might find them offensive. 58% um, of all Americans, 73% of, of Republicans. Democrats were the only group 
that a, a political group, that a majority felt like they did not have to self-censor, which gives some indication that whatever the political climate is, Democrats are more likely to feel uh, more comfortable sharing their views. And we um, asked people using open-ended questions to articulate um, what are some of the things they feel like they're not allowed to say or able to say? And it was really interesting to see differences by liberals and conservatives. So many liberals that are living in conservative areas said that they couldn't share um, that they were atheists or that they didn't support Donald Trump or um, they support sanctuary cities. But conservatives living in more liberal areas said that they couldn't talk about their religious beliefs. Um, they couldn't talk about their, their views on immigration or gay marriage and so forth. So just about everyone, um, liberals and conservatives have things they feel like they couldn't share, but overall, um, Democrats were more likely to feel comfortable. And this was a surprising finding. Um, we wanted to know if um, Clinton voters and Trump voters felt like they could be friends with people who voted for the other candidate. We found that um, about two-thirds of Clinton voters felt like it was hard to be friends with Donald Trump voters. I expected that we would find the same thing among Trump voters, but we didn't. We actually found that about 61% of Trump voters felt like it was not hard to be friends with people who voted for Hillary Clinton. So this might give some sense as to why Republicans were more likely than Democrats to feel like they couldn't express their views um, because of these kind of differences in um, you know, who you can be friends with if you express your true political views. So I've shared a lot with you about ideas on speech, free speech, campus speech, and tolerance. Just briefly, I do want to switch and show you some of our results that we asked about when it comes to the media and freedom of the press, given that that's also very salient today in the news. You're surprised to find that 63% of Republicans agree that journalists today are an enemy of the American people. Um, and this is something that President Trump has tweeted out, so that may have something to do with these results. But again, this is out of step with what most people think. 64% of all Americans do not think journalists are an enemy of the, of the American people. So this might lead you to think that perhaps Republicans are more likely to support government censorship of media. So we also asked about that. We did not find evidence of that in this particular survey. Um, we asked about whether or not government officials be, should be allowed to stop a news story from being published if those government officials say it is biased or inaccurate. And overall, 70% of Americans say government should not have this power. And while Democrats were most likely to say government shouldn't have this power, Republicans weren't too far behind. So generally speaking, we don't see a lot of support for um, government censoring stories just because they say it's biased or inaccurate. But here's where we did find some differences. And it has a lot to do with credibility. Who's credible? So we asked people about a variety of news outlets and asked them if they thought that the coverage they saw from these outlets were balanced, had a liberal bias, a conservative bias, um, or some other kind of bias. And what we found for most of the outlets, um, this is among all Americans. This isn't among just Republicans or Democrats. Most, among most Americans, they think that most of these major news organizations have a liberal bias in their reporting. Um, interestingly, the source of news that people found most trustworthy was the news closer to home, their local TV news station. Um, that was the only one that got a majority, 54%, who felt like um, their local TV news station had balanced coverage of the news. 
Fox was the one exception that had um, a majority who thought it had a conservative bias. And the Wall Street Journal actually did fairly well, um, where you had about equal numbers saying it had a liberal conservative bias or was balanced. There's a lot more in the survey that I would love to share with you, but we're going to turn to our panel now so we can discuss some of these results and the implications for the future. Thanks. Well, you know, I saw that when it, uh, Emily first had it, those results. Maybe it's something about having it up here on the screen. It's even more shocking. <laughs> it's kind of disturbing, isn't it? I mean, some of the results uh, were really quite amazing. But that's all the more reason to have a discussion about it here. And what I would like to do now is introduce each of the uh, people that will be taking part in this conversation. And Emily will come back, and the conversation can begin. Uh, our first uh, panelist I would like to introduce is Dr. Jeffrey Herbst, who was until recently president and CEO of the Museum and the Museum Institute in Washington, DC. From 2010 to 2015, he was the president of Colgate University. He is also a trustee of Freedom House. Previously, he served as provost and executive vice president for academic affairs and professor of political science at Miami University in Ohio. For 18 years, he taught at Princeton University, where he also earned his bachelor's degree summa cum laude in 1983. He earned a master's degree from Yale and a doctorate in 1987, also from Yale. He is the author of the award-winning States and Power in Africa, and with several co-authors that just published Making Africa Work. In addition to many books and articles, he has published in Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and many other papers across the world. Uh, he first came to my attention in this context when uh, the museum had done a poll, and he offered uh, what I thought was a interesting and perhaps uh, ultimately persuasive when people were lamenting the fact that uh, people at college uh, had the views that you've seen in some cases they had about punishing offensive speech, Dr. Herbst asked the question, well, why would they have this? And uh, he pointed out that, in fact, part of the issue was they came to college with it. They didn't get it in many ways at college. And also that people, young people, had been taught only one part of the offense-free speech. They had been taught and grown up uh, to be taught that one is not offensive, and then if you're not taught about First Amendment and how important it is, then you're just left with, you shouldn't be offensive. So Dr. Herbst, thanks for coming today. <laughs> just come up, please. Uh, Camille Foster is a partner at Freethink, a digital media company creating content about the people and ideas changing our world. Freethink's original video series explore the intersection of culture and revolution. Pop revolution is the name there. Fractious political de debates crossing the divide. And the innovations reshaping entire industries. Challengers is the title. Camille is a regular contributor to various national media programs and co-hosts a syndicated media commentary podcast, The Fifth Column. In addition to his work in media, Camille previously co-founded ventures in the technology, communications, and consumer goods sectors. And in August of this year, he joined the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. You may know it as FIRE Advisory Council. Welcome to Cato, Camille.
And finally, Connor Friedersdorf is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he focuses on national affairs and civil liberties. He is also a contributor to the Los Angeles Times, founding editor of The Best of Journalism, and the author of Meeting Triumph and Disaster, a biography of Milton C. Shedd. He lives in California. Welcome to Cato. And now it's over to Emily. today and to be able to discuss um, the survey results. Um, I thought we would take a few minutes where you could share with us some of your initial reactions and then we could open it up to just a roundtable discussion. Jeff, would you like to start? Sure, I'd be delighted. I'd like to first thank Cato uh, for hosting this conference and this panel. As you can see from the data, these are very important issues uh, for our society. I'd also like to congratulate Emily on doing something which as a social scientist I approve of uh, greatly, which is bringing data uh, to important questions. As you saw in the slides, and that's just a portion of the survey uh, that Emily and Cato have done, uh, there's a lot there. Uh, I'm not going to try to uh, comment on every slide or even a lot of the issues, but to just make a few observations in the few minutes that I've been given at the start. First, I think the uh, problem as such starts in the very first slide, which is that 59% of Americans oppose laws which I think uh, uh, were about opposed uh, uh, laws banning hateful speech. And Emily said quite correctly this was a majority. What was striking to me is it's a low majority, given the, uh, given the very clear nature, not only of the First Amendment, but uh, 100 plus years of jurisprudence. And I think almost the entire presentation and what many in the audience would have seen as problematic flows from that relatively low number because then you get people opting on one side or the other depending on their particular group or their particular issues. Uh, but what I think we see is a relatively low level of underlying faith in the value and the importance and the prerogative of free speech in our society today. Uh, we can debate why that is, but I think like so much else, an important aspect is social media, which has affected so much of our conversation in a relatively short period of time. Uh, the breakout of demographic groups, and you'll, the survey tries to um, look at uh, different groups, African Americans and Latinos specifically, I think is also a valuable service. Not the first time this has been done, but perhaps the most systematic that I've seen. Uh, and you'll see uh, some considerable skepticism on the part of groups which feel uh, often alienated or powerless and who believe, perhaps, who believe, according to the survey, even taking account the confidence intervals, that quite often hate speech, especially directed against them, should be regulated, but more generally hate speech should be regulated, period. I sense this uh, as president of a uni university and from observations on college campuses that students who feel alienated, who feel powerless, have lost faith in the value of free expression. And it's important to note that it's a tremendous change uh, from the civil rights era when Dr. King and his colleagues saw all five freedoms of the First Amendment as critical to uh, their struggle to achieve equality in American society. I think this is a very important issue, not least because I think tactically, forget about for a moment, the jurisprudence and the importance of the Constitution. But tactically, these groups are wrong 
and believing that uh, they can achieve goal, their goal, much uh, in the making of American society's history, their goal of achieving equality while censoring other people's speech. Because inevitably, it is at the end of the day, those who are weak, those who are powerless, who will be censored by the more powerful. And I think that important tactical argument, in addition to the constitutional protections we understand, is important to make to the societies. Finally, I couldn't help but comment on the extensive results found about attitudes of Americans in general and college students in particular about speech on campus. And look, it's depressing. Uh, and uh, it goes beyond the occasional incident which we all read about in the paper about one speaker or another being booed off the podium, as bad as those are, uh, to suggest that there's fairly systematic uh, self-censorship across a fairly wide variety of issues. I think the data by Emily and others is now convincing enough to say that in addition to the speaker issues, which can become spectacular and which can direct too much attention at a particular campus when there are 4,000 colleges and universities in this country, there's an underlying problem. And I think we have to shift now to saying, okay, what are colleges and universities going to do? My own view is that there's been an evolution in how administrators think. They've become more cognizant of this problem. And I think we're beginning to see pushback against the heckler's veto in particular that you saw. That UC Berkeley was, a, was willing to spend many hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, enable for speech to go forward. This is one data point only, admittedly, but an important one. And I think college administrators have to think hard about this issue in the future, and the public has to think about it too. I will note, of course, that many of these institutions are public institutions where the First Amendment clearly applies, but even private institutions should have the same ambitions about free speech as public institutions. A lot more issues to discuss. want to, again, thank Emily for this uh, really uh, comprehensive review, and I think it gives us a lot of data to think through a set of problems which should be troubling to everyone across the political spectrum. Yeah. Um, well, I'd like to echo the uh, thanks to Emily and to Cato broadly. Um, Cato has been a really important organization in my own. Can, can you not hear me? Good. Is that working? No. I will, I will project my voice. Good? Great. Cato has been enormously important in my own uh, philosophical evolution and developing an appreciation for why free speech matters. Um, I, I will try my best not to reiterate all of the things that I forcefully agree with. Um, I, I, I worry that we may end up echoing each other a bunch. So first, a couple of specific insights that I have after watching your presentation, and then some broader meta points um, that I, I had um, after reviewing things myself. Um, the perspectives on immigration uh, that appear to exist with respect to a particular concrete belief that it is wrong to make a, a declaration that um, illegal immigrants should be deported, for example, that this is offensive. Um, this is, as most of us know, a relatively new perspective for Democrats. 
whether or not they found religion on this issue and this, is this new belief that they have is informed by some sort of deep moral change that's happened or just simple partisan tribalism and a real fluidness in terms of their willingness to sort of move from one idea to the other because the other guys have it, therefore it must be evil, um, is something that I'm, I'm not sure about. Um, but if that is the case, even a little bit, um, then that might suggest an explanation for a lot of the other specific places where we see conservatives and Democrats willing to make compromises um, when it comes to free speech. Um, but I'll step away from the specifics and get really broad, uh, because what is very obvious here is that there is a fundamental misunderstanding of what, in fact, free speech is. Um, there's a broad agreement about certain things. I think it was like 70%. I had to have some of the numbers here. Um, but the highest point of agreement um, on, the, uh, on the survey was that hate speech is hard to define, 82%, but whatever it is, it leads to violence against minorities, 70%. These are overall numbers. A big problem in this country is that it has become too politically correct, 70%. The political climate these days prevents me from saying things that I believe. A bit softer at 58%, but I mean, pretty high for Democrats, 48, Independents, 58, and Republicans, 73. What's interesting is, the, on the other hand, that our, they still believe by a percentage of 56% that our society can prohibit hate speech, again, whatever it is, um, and still protect free speech. Um, and there are other things about this that are still a bit confounding. When we talk about the universities, uh, universities aren't doing enough to teach Americans about the value of free speech. This is something that Democrats, independents, and Republicans believe. It's something that whites, African-Americans, Latinos all believe. They also believe that students aren't being exposed to enough uh, diverse viewpoints. They believe this to the same degree and with the same intensity, but they also believe that people need to be protected from these dangerous, hateful ideas um, on campus. Um, so what exactly are they talking about when they say that campuses need to be more diverse places? Um, it is enormously difficult to, to tease this out. What's clear is there's certainly not a broad agreement about this idea of free speech. And, I want to suggest that there is perhaps a danger that is far more severe in having the phrase free expression be robbed of any sort of fundamental meaning that we can all agree on, um, and to have it instead either adopt some sort of transitive property, where when it's used by one group, it means all of these special things, and in another case, it means all of these special things, or it just simply means whatever it means in some nebulous, broad sense to any individual person. Um, I think this is far worse than just abandoning the principle of free speech, especially for people who advocate for the principle, the idea. Um, it makes it a hell of a lot more difficult to actually explain what this is and why it matters if we can't actually make articulate defenses. Everyone agrees with the high-minded, uh, grandiose platitudes about what freedom of speech is and why it matters. Um, but the fact that people seem to get ahistorical, um, have ahistorical beliefs in some contexts about the role of free speech in defending the rights of minorities, um, and by minorities, I mean minorities broadly, um, that is disconcerting. And among African Americans, that belief does in fact exist, as uh, Emily indicated in her earlier presentation. I think this is both a challenge and an opportunity. Um, it's awful that people have forgotten sort of the legacy of the civil rights movement um, as pertains to free speech. Um, 
And I think there's a real opportunity to tell that story in a way that resonates with people to try to explain why this is something that still matters. Um, another um, sort of singular data point that I, I wanted to quickly point out is um, the perspective that holding a particular view and articulating it and defending someone's right to articulate a view that you disagree with um, that is deemed hateful, that both things by some people are deemed to be equally bad. Um, again, this creates all manner of challenges, and we saw that with the ACLU, um, who received a great deal of criticism after the tragic events of Charlottesville. Um, and what the ACLU, ACLU did after that is instructive. Um, the fact that they have pulled back, that they are recalibrating their own mechanisms for the kind of groups that they're willing to defend um, in these cases, uh, folks who have guns, uh, for example, that their protests uh, are unlikely to have their support. Um, one wonders why driver's license or pilot's licenses are also part of the criteria since they have been used in hatefully motivated attacks. Um, this is a slippery slope. It's not clear what this would have meant for the Black Panthers, given that when it comes to words like hate, dangerous, these are labels that are often applied to groups that are minorities, that have fringe perspectives, unpopular opinions. Um, they typically don't adopt those views on their own. Um, so unless we've achieved nirvana uh, when it comes to our beliefs about what is morally acceptable and good and righteous, um, there is something to be very concerned about once we fail to start defending, once we fail to continue defending forcefully um, the margins where people are saying intensely unpopular things, um, even things that we all sort of fundamentally disagree with. Uh, because that is, generally speaking, where the battle lines are drawn that, implicate, that have implications for all speech more broadly. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Connor. I come to survey data like this having spent a lot of time, especially on college campuses, uh, but also among the population, the electorate, especially more broadly, trying to figure out what people think about free speech through conversation and debate and trying to tease out their views and interviews. Uh, and then, as an opinion journalist, often trying to persuade them to my very civil libertarian views on the First Amendment and uh, support for a culture of free speech more generally. Uh, one of the things I've found on college campuses is a view of the First Amendment as something that protects the powerful um, instead of something that protects minority views. And it was one of the most surprising things to me when I first started reporting on this subject. Um, one of the things that I try to persuade people with on college campuses is just to hearken back to the last cultural moment when lots of speech restrictions were put into effect uh, before they were struck down by the courts. And uh, just about everywhere they were put into effect, the intention was to protect uh, traditionally persecuted groups, especially African-Americans from uh, what just about everyone would consider pretty abhorrent hate speech. And then if you look at how those speech codes were actually enforced, uh, it was actually African-American and to a lesser degree uh, Latino students who were punished the most frequently by these speech codes because to pass constitutional muster they had to be written in race neutral ways and the way that it played out were the very groups that these codes were 
that's supposed to protect um, being the most put upon. And I found that that's actually persuaded a lot of people to at least give this issue another look. Uh, and so looking at this survey data, I was, I was kind of thinking, is there anything in here that will help me persuade anyone to come around to uh, being friendlier to free speech and free expression? And, and for all the kind of dispiriting uh, numbers across different questions, uh, I, I think that there are some takeaways that getting people to look at all of the questions together highlight. Um, one of them is just from a very practical perspective, all of the fights that the First Amendment, uh, that a strong First Amendment is keeping us from having to have as a society. Whatever you think about all of these different issues, it's just clear that having lots of them settled uh, by the Bill of Rights uh, is just um, stopping a whole bunch of very divisive fights that I think even people who might disagree about them on the merits are, are kind of glad at this moment that we're not having them. Um, I'm also struck by um, what I think of as the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment problem, which is to say, if you're defending the First Amendment or the Fourth Amendment, you, you often find yourself having to do it in the face of the most terrible cases, because these are the ones uh, that arise in our system of constitutional law. So a criminal does something that is egregious by any measure, and the police violated the Fourth Amendment rights, and so you're in the position of defending this person. Or someone says something that you think is really awful, uh, but you think that they should have the right to say it. Um, and I think because differences in partisanship and differences uh, across racial groups as well, um, there are different things that different people want to make illegal and punish. It, it highlights the way in which almost everyone is being protected from something by the First Amendment. And you can point that out and say, hey, a majority says this, you think this. Um, aren't you glad it's around? It is protecting you, whether you think of yourself as a disempowered person, an empowered person. Uh, you are the defendant in this case, in some sense. And surely you think of yourself as sympathetic. Um, I'm also struck by the equity that comes with everyone losing some of these cases. And this is another effect of the First Amendment that uh, everyone's ox can get gored. And I think that that is really helpful in protecting against the really divisive fights that would come if you singled out even one group for special protection. Inevitably, every other group would say, well, hey, uh, isn't my concern just as legitimate as theirs? Whereas if no one gets this special treatment, uh, people don't feel disrespected in addition to whatever else they think about speech. Um, another thing I noticed was just the tremendous gulf between opinion on elite campuses about what constitutes um, an offensive, to use their term of art, microaggression, and the survey data, which seemed to show that actually across just about every racial group, lots of the things that uh, campuses like the UC system actually said were microaggressions that you shouldn't use, uh, asking someone where they're from, telling uh, uh, an immigrant that they speak very good English, things like this. Almost no one here thought it was offensive. And these are things that campuses are starting to clamp down upon. So I thought that that was a really interesting gulf in campus opinion. Um, and it was also interesting to see the NFL case and how that pulled, because it seems to me to be largely a mirror image. You know, It's an instance of 
um, Donald Trump and many of his supporters being, uh, again, to use the campus terms of art, triggered by microaggressions and wanting to punish speech. Um, let's see here. Um, and again, drawing on reporting from the campus context, there's often uh, an idea put forth that people who are more protective of speech on campus ought to be deferring to what students of color think or to what people of color think. Um, the way that that's defined in campus discourse is often to treat people of color as having the same opinion as left progressives. And this survey data bears out that that is, in fact, not the case at all. That um, especially when you look at an issue where the elite consensus among progressives on something like Black Lives Matter protests and criticizing the police is in one place. And in this survey data, you saw uh, more Democrats than Republicans thinking it would be OK to punish hate speech against the police and more African-American Latino and Latinos than whites holding that same position. And so the survey data also highlights the degree to which elite discourse is kind of out of step with actual public opinion among these groups that people in elite discourse are claiming for their own side when actually the numbers don't bear that out. Thank you. So kind of taking all of this together with the survey data, the thing that really stood out to me is how almost every idea that, that we asked about on the survey, some non-insignificant number of people found offensive. Um, so if we were to take the approach where we were to censor either socially, you know, in the private sphere or somehow censor legally speech that a significant number of people find offensive, there would be a lot of discussions we couldn't have. Um, I think that college students must know that. Um, but so this is my question, is knowing that, why still insist on trying to use the power that you have to prevent others from expressing political opinions that they might just think are an opinion, but that you find offensive. Is it that people feel as long as they keep the majority, as long as they maintain the power structure that they're in, it's okay to censor speech that they find offensive? Do you think that that's part of what's going on? Or what do you think explains the motivation of college students? Or do you think that perhaps some of them haven't thought through that almost everyone finds some idea that they have offensive? What do you think explains that motivation? I'm not sure I would attach a big structure to it. And of course, the survey data, you know, by asking, in some cases, binary answers, is this offensive or not? Is it hate speech or not? Um, forces respondents into a, into a yes or no situation where many will say, will have degrees of response in the real world, like that's annoying, but okay, or that's, you shouldn't say that, but not because I want to regulate it, but because it's not polite. And I think there's, it's very hard to capture the nuance of opinion in that way. So I wouldn't attach much structure to it. I think what's happening on college campuses, as I said in the introduction, in part, students come to campus now with a set of ideas that it's, 
impolite and should not be allowed to say certain things as, that are offensive, especially to minority groups, although your data indicates it's actually more widespread than that. Uh, and that uh, this is what they hear quite often in elementary and secondary school uh, by teachers who are not informed about the First Amendment or to not believe in many cases that the First Amendment applies to young people, when of course it does. Uh, and second, I think, and I gave a brief uh, reference to this in my remarks, we can't underestimate how social media has affected college students who on average now got their first smartphone at the age of 12. So most of their cognizant lives, they've been in social media of one type or another, where they both see uh, debate which is more sharp, more offensive, than when speech was more limited to person-to-person -person communications, and where it's also possible to turn off that speech, blocking someone, unfriending them, and the like, where they therefore think they have more agency to regulate speech. And we're only the beginning days, obviously, of this era, but we're gonna have to tease all of that out. But I wouldn't assign necessarily a big political architecture to these particular views. I think it's, it's more complicated. I'm always struck by um, one of the biggest changes in the language that college students use over the last decade. I don't know when exactly the switch came, but invoking the idea of spaces and safe spaces. And it's, it's not the safe part of that that um, strikes me so much as the spaces and using that term to conceptualize what's going on on campus and free speech. I've tried to tease out in individual conversations, why are people using these words and what do they mean by this? And I think that you're right to talk about social media and the effect that that's had, that um, sometimes when college students want to ban speech, they only want to ban it on their campuses. They're not talking about banning it in the digital world. They conceive of that as literally impossible and think about forums like Reddit and even social media to some degree as places where you can say anything, and they want an in real life sphere that is more protected than that, especially at their colleges, which they conceive of as more akin to their home than I think previous generations of students um, would have. And, and so the combination of feeling like there is this kind of wild west and there should be something that's separate from that because we don't want our immediate surroundings to be like an in real life version of Reddit, um, that kind of visceral fear and also the conception of college at home are doing some of the work there, although how much I don't know. That's very insightful. I mean, so is college more like your home or is it more like the Wild West when it comes to ideas? Yeah, I know we spoke briefly about this in the green room, um, but the Knight Foundation conducted a similar uh, survey of college students. And one of the things that stood out to me actually was a pair of questions, uh, the first of which was, um, so, you know, how would you rate the racial environment on your campus? Is it hostile? Um, and most folks gave their own campus very high marks. Um, they did, however, have a great deal of concern about conditions on other people's campuses. Um, so perhaps it's social media. Um, perhaps there is just a broader narrative in the zeitgeist um, about this particular danger that is out there lurking in the ether. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I, fi I find it difficult to, to sort of pinpoint that. I do think, however, that there's a commonality amongst all of these things, and we've, we've hinted at it, but just to, to state it explicitly, 
perceptions of things that are dangerous to the hearers, um, whether it's going to convert them into someone who's hateful or it will injure them psychically or lead to physical violence against them, um, or even if there's some imagined harm there, those are the places where people are willing to regulate speech, full stop. To the extent that's the case, then we really do have to make the case that it is valuable to us as a society to incur this particular danger. Um, I think that is pretty much where we are to the extent we care about this. And the reason why it becomes necessary is, as you stated, any attempt to actually regulate speech does end up with just this odd uh, patchwork of things that you can and can't do. And it does tend to create environments where people feel um, uncomfortable talking about things in honest and open ways. Um, and there are any number of respects in which that's stultifying. Right. What's interesting is that a lot of, I agree with what you're saying, I think a lot of people, they don't view it that way. And we saw that in the survey data where there was a lot of <coughs> conflicting results. You brought that up, Camille, um, how um, people would say we shouldn't ban hate speech, but then hate speech was an act of violence and various uh, kind of conflicting ideas. But one in particular uh, that you brought up is that a slim majority of Americans said that we can protect free speech and still prohibit or ban hate speech. I actually got that line, I believe, from a Wellesley student editorial board um, where they said, look, we believe in the First Amendment. We believe in free speech. Please stop calling us snowflakes. We believe we can protect the First Amendment. We can protect free speech, but we can also ban hate speech. And then I started noticing that being reflected a lot in a lot of these student manifestos. So what do you say to that? A lot of Americans do think that you can protect free speech and ban hate speech at the same time. What do you say to that? I mean, one of the things that, it's almost entirely uh, people on the left at the moment that I hear making this argument in my interactions. And one thing I say is Donald Trump is president. Jeff Sessions is attorney general. Um, look at the state legislatures and, and who controls them. How do you think they will define hate speech? Does it align at all with how you would define hate speech? Clearly not. And, and so how do you think, in practice, this is going to work out? Um, and I mean, one of the questions that struck me in here, in this survey data, actually, was the quarter, about a quarter of people saying that they believed it was already illegal to say something racist in public. And it made me wonder if some of the responses to the other questions were grounded in that um, ignorance and people were basically saying, oh, I think things are about right right now, a kind of status quo bias, and if that was affecting other results. Um, but I, I would think it would be more powerful than it is to say, look who is president, look who is attorney general. Um, right. That's my best answer, well, though. Interesting, just really quickly, a lot of students said that the election, now these are students that don't support President Trump, they said the election of President Trump proved to them that free speech doesn't work, that actually it backfires. I think um, I'll process that for a little bit longer <laughs> <laughs> and say simply this, that I think we have to appeal to people both on 
level of jurisprudence. There is a knowledge of the First Amendment. Yes, surveys indicate that people can't list all five freedoms of the First Amendment, but they know that free speech is at the bedrock of American society. I think that's part of the appeal. But I think we also have to appeal to people on a tactical level. And like I said, whether it's groups that feel alienated or powerless, or saying this, with reference to Charlottesville, which you also brought up. Would you rather pretend that there are not Nazis and KKK in our society? Uh, thanks. Uh, is that what you'd rather pretend? That you'd rather knock them off our screens and not let them speak so we can't see them? I'll guarantee you they'll still be there, but we won't be discussing it. And would you rather have a society where we can see our ills in the open and then think seriously, okay, what does this mean and what are we going to do about it? Or would we rather just pretend it's going to go away? And I think arguing also on the tactical level that if you want to actually improve society, you've got to recognize what society is telling you is important. Um, so Camille, uh, Camille, you and I were talking in uh, the green room before we started this panel about trends. And um, Jeff, I'm sure you've seen this data as well. Um, if you look at the 1950s and 1960s, that's when surveys first started asking people about um, various ideas that someone could have. And should they be allowed to speak in a public square? Should they be allowed to publish a book? Um, and that's actually kind of what inspired some of these survey questions, but we just inserted some new ideas. But in the 50s and 60s, the questions they were asking about, should a communist be allowed to speak? Should an atheist be allowed to speak? And a feminist? And back then, the kind of the center of gravity in terms of censorship was kind of the was on the right of center, wanting to clamp down on feminists, atheists, communists, Marxists, and so forth. Um, and now we've seen a little bit of a shift, although this data certainly makes clear that there is censorship to go around um, on, on all sides. But what do you think might explain why we've seen at least that center of gravity shift um, over the past 30 years? And several of you brought this up, how what happened to a memory of the civil rights movement and how free speech was so critical to that movement in the, 50, in the 50s and 60s? What, what do you make of that? My instinct is that it has to do with um, a certain segment of people on the right who are just most willing to um, sort of run over free speech protections when they think that it's undermining the safety of the nation from an external threat. And so you've seen this shift from communists to Islam and you see that reflected in the not wanting to build a mosque in our community. And that's kind of what that line item is about. I mean, I, I want to be sure I understand that point. You, you're saying that you, you think that the right is primarily responsible for that trend? I, no, I'm saying that um, the same attitudes that the right once uh, took toward communism, and, and not just the right, certainly a broader swath of America takes toward external threats. Uh, that is now focused on Islam, and so w where you find that coming into speech is like head coverings and, um, and building mosques, and you see the kind of same desire among some to suppress speech that is no longer applied to communists and feminists because that is no longer perceived as an outside threat to the nation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, in, in similar fashion, uh, when progressives talk about a number of issues that are of concern to them, again, it's still sort of danger and risk. And 
not to get into a conversation about uh, speech and money and whether or not the two are equivalent, uh, we do have uh, a very relevant current narrative that is playing out in the media. Um, but we have Facebook, um, which is an organization um, that someone purchased ads on um, who may in fact have been from Russia or it might have been a Russian organization that was purchasing these ads. In either case, there are now senators who are interested in going after Facebook and actually broadly after this category of people purchasing ads to support political causes online. When this was initially floated, we were talking about a threshold of $10,000 for an ad buy. Um, the first draft of this, if I understand uh, the reporting on it, and clearly we're relying on a great many leaks, which are real, even if the news is fake, um, the, the reporting suggests that the way this has been drafted um, is there is no threshold anymore, which is bizarre, if true, and really frightening and terrifying. Like what, in fact, is an ad that I'm buying on Facebook? I certainly pay for internet access, even if I don't pay to post something. Is my post in support of a particular cause something that is going to be regulated, monitored, logged by the state? Will any post online be regulated by the state? There's a sense in which this is completely impractical. At some point, we might actually find ourselves with an equivalent of Facebook that lives on Tor, um, wherein people are purchasing posts, purchasing the right to post with Bitcoin, and there is no way to trace this at all. But for the moment, fear of the danger posed by the Russians, for example, made manifest in legislation that is supposed to protect us from $150,000 worth of meddling in our elections, um, a $2 billion election, um, or $2 billion presidential race, $6 billion election cycle, if not more. Um, that is a little frightening. And here again, it's fear motivating folks to make compromises on fundamental principles that they claim to believe in. You've actually seen a few high-profile instances of antagonism to speech that is true, which is to say the leaked Hillary Clinton emails during the election were true. Uh, the stuff that Edward Snowden leaked was true. And yet lots of Americans think it should be punishable um, to, to tell us true things about our own polity, um, that our policies that affect us all even. I mean, the question you ask about why these shifts, why the shift from the embrace uh, by many of free speech as a protest movement in the 60s to today, I think part of it is the ebbs and flow of American politics where the parties have, in many cases, very different positions than they did in the 1960s. Republicans used to be much more in favor of immigration uh, to take one, only one view. I mean, there's been a real shift in uh, crossover. Issues regarding race. It also reflects, and this is something, the sentiment I'm deeply sympathetic to, a profound frustration on our lack of progress. Uh, that if you had asked many people in the 1960s when major achievements, milestones, civil rights uh, legislation were being achieved, what would American society look like in 50 years? Uh, they wouldn't have said this, frankly. Uh, and when people are frustrated, uh, and I'm frustrated too, 
but when many people are frustrated, uh, they look for legislative actions to address, if not the realities, the symptoms. And I think that's something we have to acknowledge. Can I add one thing to that? Um, I know that sort of within the libertarian movement, broadly speaking, that there is um, an advocacy for something like uh, anti-racism being adopted as a fundamental tenet of the movement and part of the advocacy of ideas. Um, I understand the instinct. I know that it's motivated by genuine concern for those issues. Um, I do think, however, that when it comes to sort of fundamental issues like this, um, that commingling our particular moral concerns with the specific sort of advocacy that is required to try to articulate why these principles matter within sort of a classical liberal framework um, are very different things. And while the value might be important, it is a relevant and reasonable and worthwhile question to ask. Should I go buy designer sneakers tonight or should I give that money to someone who lost their home um, after a hurricane? Um, what is the appropriate age of consent for a young person to engage in sexual relations? These are important, worthwhile questions to ask. Um, I don't know that classical liberal um, organizations have particular insights on this. Um, they can certainly lead on these issues if there is a broad consensus amongst them and they all want to contribute to this cause or discuss it. Um, but there is a, a danger in potentially sort of fetishizing these issues. And I think it's made manifest when you look at someone like the ACLU, who again is backed away from organizations who are displaying firearms at their um, events, um, or is potentially, I guess, as according to them, going to scrutinize more rigorously folks who are um, affiliated with or are in fact hate groups or supremacist groups. Again, who's making these determinations? Uh, I do think it is not myopia to determine that it is imperative to make a principled, fundamental, rigorous argument in favor of these ideals. It's not myop myopic at all. Um, and I don't think that we need to rush towards something that could be, um, or at least have the impact of making um, certain attempts to advocate for these ideals something more reactionary. So. Um, before we open up to Q&A, I want to ask one more question that will be kind of like I'm playing de devil's advocate for myself here. So here are some of the, here's some of the pushback that I've received while working on this project and then also I think would be relevant to what we've been discussing here this afternoon. So some people will say, look, the First Amendment is secure. When it comes to legal precedent, there is no fear that the First Amendment will be repealed in any sort of meaningful way, that it won't be regulated into you know, non-existence. Others will say, okay, so the First Amendment is fine, but a lot of these other issues that we've been raising here about you know, when it comes to toleration of diverse ideas on college campuses, well, a lot of these have occurred on private college campuses, and we, I certainly recognize there is a difference between a private college campus and a public college campus. The First Amendment applies on the, on the public, campus, but not on the private in the same way. Um, and so these schools should be allowed to 
do whatever they want, cancel whatever speakers they want if they're offensive in their view. Um, and also private companies. They're allowed to fire employees who um, express ideas that people find offensive. And I would say I agree with all of those things that is, that is factually correct, that they are allowed to do that. Um, but here's where there's the pushback. They'll say because of those things, what we've been discussing today doesn't matter. The results that we've seen here don't matter, and that we shouldn't be concerned about some of these trends or results because one, the First Amendment is just fine, or when it comes to the private sphere, it doesn't matter. So here's my question to you. Does it matter? Do you think that this has an implication for the future of free speech and the kind of marketplace of ideas? Or do you think that we don't really have a lot to worry about and that we're going to kind of stay on a similar trajectory? Oh, we should be worried. <laughs> First, I don't think the First Amendment is secure. We had one major pub, uh, presidential candidate uh, in the last election, by the way, won, a major, won uh, the uh, popular vote, who was advocating for the amendment of the First Amendment around Citizens United. We're also much closer to a revision of the First Amendment around flag burning than many people realize. Uh, and many state legislatures are much closer uh, to putting it, to voting for uh, making flag burning illegal than we often understand. Uh, so I'm not at all convinced uh, that the First Amendment is secure. Private university thing, speaking as a former president of private university, I hate that argument uh, because, and, and very, very few presidents of private universities will make that argument today. Everyone that I've heard, even if, dependent, even if the realities of the campus will say that they have the same ambitions for speech that are required on public universities. I haven't heard anyone say something contrary. Their actions, they may, may be a little different, but they believe that. And third, on private companies, Look, there are the vast majority of private companies, and then there's a couple of companies which are providing platforms for much of our public discourse today, especially Alphabet, Facebook, and Twitter. And uh, the reason that the Google case, Google part of Alphabet, of course, um, was so important was because, look, if that had happened at the Ford Motor Company, it wouldn't have been a big deal, and he would have been fired. Uh, and no one would have blinked an eye. The reason why it was such a big deal at Google was because Google's business is search, and it dominates search in the United States and even more so around the world. And if you have a company that seems to be restricting ideas, which they're allowed to do, it's not a question of legality. It's a question of, wow, does that seep over into the algorithmic search process, which we're highly dependent upon uh, in American society and world society? So that's a huge issue, uh, that we've ceded the public discourse to the platforms of a few companies that most users don't understand how they work. And as it's been revealed in the last few weeks, the executives quite often don't understand 
what's going on, uh, whether it be Russian ads or the ability to isolate Jew haters on Facebook or uh, the placement of ads of conventional companies on videos on YouTube that are highly offensive. So uh, there's a lot going on. But in a society and in a world where so many of the conventional wisdoms have been overturned in the last few years, uh, was reading a quote this morning from Mayor Bloomberg who said uh, about the last election and why he didn't participate, that he was advised that a New York billionaire who had switched parties several times could not win. Uh, you know, when there are so many wisdoms that have been overturned, I'm not willing to um, be sanguine on the basis of these. I think freedom, freedom of speech, is something that always has to be defended and defended vocally. Yeah, I, I certainly agree uh, with that sentiment. I, I definitely think that the danger is real, the danger to the, not, not merely the First Amendment, its protections it's themselves, but the culture of free speech that you know, one would hope we have been able to cultivate or could, can in fact cultivate in this country to the extent that it doesn't exist in the way that we um, maybe thought it did. Um, one uh, sort of tangentially related point uh, that I would bring to bear here is that there's similar problems with other fundamental things, um, often critical of democracy in various contexts. But the word democracy um, is something that is celebrated around the world. It is a value that people um, talk about and say that is very important to them. Um, whether or not we are talking about the same thing when we say democracy, however, is another thing entirely. Um, and the fact that people who live in very repressive countries uh, will routinely say that they, you know, say on a scale of one to ten, well, yeah, I think we're, you know, a six or a seven in terms of how democratic we are. Um, that's disconcerting, um, and I think that sort of migration of meaning uh, when it comes to these fundamental, principle, bedrock ideas um, is something that we really do have to be on guard against. And wherever there is uh, a heightened sort of fear or anxiety, again, real or imagined, over real or imagined problems, um, there is a real danger to the polity broadly and to those fundamental freedoms. I'm confident in um, the ability of free speech and a culture of free expression to prevail, uh, but only because there are people advocating for it. I do think that there can be um, undue alarmism over temporary trends, especially when you look back at American history and see all the horrific abrogations of the First Amendment in many ways that we've made tremendous progress. Um, but, uh, but I think that waging the fight is tremendously important. You can be the much stronger team in an athletic contest. You still have to show up and play in order to win. Um, I also think that the it's, it's, I think free speech is perhaps most secure in the core civic sense of political speech um, and, and the government not going after political speech. Certainly in the judiciary, um, that is sacrosanct. I'm a little bit more worried about um, a couple of different incursions. One legal, the way that Title IX and anti-discrimination law can be used to suppress speech or to coerce private organizations into suppressing speech. Um, another is this larger sense in which we don't just want free speech and a culture of free expression 
uh, for the civic process and to protect people's fundamental rights, although both of those things are very important, uh, but because of this larger sense in which this is how we unearth knowledge in a liberal society, and we want to keep unearthing knowledge and getting closer and closer to uh, arriving at important truths. And so, um, yeah, I think it, it's indispensable for every generation to fight. Thank you. I think we'll turn it over to the audience for Q&A. Um, I think that we have microphones that we brought to you. Um, if you could just uh, state your name and phrase what you say in the form of a question. Okay, uh, how about right up here? I don't know who has the microphone. My name is Woody Kaplan and I am my organization is the Civil Liberties List. Um, I think the problem is leadership I think with due respect to Cato, it's not trickled down, it's gotta be poured down. So I'd like to ask you what you would predict from leadership from the current, our current government. The 34th vote that stopped the flag desecration amendment referred to several times here was Mitch McConnell. Otherwise, it had passed by two-thirds of the House and would have passed by two-thirds of the Senate. If it came up again, how do you think he'd vote? Uh, I don't know, but I mean, you're right. I mean, it's precarious. And uh, I, I don't think people have focused enough on this particular issue and the more general issue that you know, the, the idea that there's a strong First Amendment and those are the stuff swirling, but it's just swirling and it doesn't have an effect, it does have an effect over time. Uh, and uh, I think the flag issue has the potential to become far more polarizing uh, in even the near future, as, as, as we've seen just recently. So I won't predict uh, how the senator will vote, but I think we're in a more precarious moment than many people understand. I, uh, I swore off political prognostication sometime <laughs> after Donald Trump won the Republican nomination. Um, but I will say that one thing that I've been looking for and occasionally see is sort of this, uh, this, this back fire effect um, where Donald Trump takes a position and this position rather than hardening for conservatives actually becomes somewhat radioactive um, and that for some vulnerable conservatives they feel the need to back away from it um, doesn't always happen certainly not the sort of thing that one can bank on um, but that might be of some use here but I have no idea yeah I'm heartened by Donald Trump's low approval ratings and by his seeming psychic need to alienate every senator who might one day rally around him to vote for something really controversial. Um, but I'm kind of looking to the 2018 midterms to see what happens within the GOP. Are there pro-Trump candidates or anti-Trump candidates or somewhere in between? Does he have the ability to swing races? Uh, and I think that will affect how a lot of people act going forward. 
Okay, uh, Fleming Rose, uh, senior fellow Cato. Um, you forgot to answer the question about uh, Trump and the failure of free speech uh, that you quoted in the uh, the poll. That uh, there were students who said that um, uh, evidence that the First Amendment has failed was the fact that Trump was elected. But couldn't you, in fact, turn it around and say that? Uh, Trump was elected uh, because his base and a lot of people, in fact, felt that they were not allowed to say things that they want to because of social and cultural pressure. It's not so much about, for, about the legal protection of speech, but the social and cultural pressures. And therefore, when he says these very outrageous things that, uh, um, that a lot of people maybe agree with, but they have not been able to uh, express them in their own circles, jobs, uh, and so on and so forth. Therefore, he was elected in the end. Well, having had time now to think about it, I don't think it's so much the Trump as truth teller. By the way, Barack Obama spent a lot of time portraying himself as a truth teller and exploring issues that he felt were under discussed in American society, such as police brutality. So he's hardly the first president uh, to think, oh, I'm going to talk about issues that I think have to be surfaced. Um, it's just that he has a different set of issues uh, than before. I will say about the election, I, since we've talked a lot about threats to First Amendment, I think it was a triumph of the First Amendment in a lot of ways because new, platformed, new platforms allowed uh, contestants outside of the political mainstream to enter. The party elites, truth be told, did hate both Trump and Sanders and wanted neither of them to be candidates, much less to be contestants. Nonetheless, one did much better than expected and the other one won the whole thing. Uh, why? Because there were new technologies in part available to go around the elites, uh, party elites, traditional media, and speak directly to the public in an extraordinarily cost-effective manner. And one of the things that is so striking about the 2016 election is Trump underspent Clinton by a considerable amount, considerable amount and still won. And that whole aspect of political journalism of who's raised the most uh, this month and how much money and how much ad buys became irrelevant overnight, although they still talk about it uh, a, a fair bit. So I think 2016 was in many ways an example of uh, new voice, a new flu fluidity in the political system. That some people didn't like the results is perhaps inevitable, uh, but it's also meant that already we're hearing in 2020 a much broader gamut of people who think that, well, I might too be elected president of the United States. I don't have to go through the conventional routes without talking about any particular surname. I think that's good. I, I also think that I don't grant the premise that the winner of any given election um, vindicates the First Amendment or, um, or, or the opposite. But e even if we were to inhabit that wrongheaded view for a moment, um, surely it would be, surely the simplistic view is that free speech will convince the majority of people to do the right thing. Uh, and if you're a Trump opponent, well, majority of people voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, 
I, I don't think that anyone's account of free speech, even the most simplistic one, would implicate the Electoral College somehow in what happens. So I, I don't think it's a very strong um, criticism of the First Amendment to say that. A number of, uh, sort of elegant, simple answers that explain this past election, um, whether it be you know, white lash or whatever else, um, I don't know. Um, it's certainly complicated. We do know that there were a number of very unpopular candidates. There was this disruptive process um, where the, the, lo the loser spent twice what the winner did. Um, that is all uh, pretty astounding. Um, I don't know uh, how, how good that is uh, in terms of the kind of societal outcomes that we want for the future, um, that things could swing violently from one uh, sort of fringe extremist candidate who hasn't been tempered uh, by their own party. Um, the concern that I've often expressed, though, is that that tempering, in some cases, isn't so much a moderation of policy and doesn't necessarily lead to fundamentally different kinds of outcomes. Um, but it does, in many cases, make people um, less apt to be critical of politicians in the particular um, things that they, goals they might pursue. The one sort of advantage of a Trump presidency is he is not at all skilled in using euphemism. Um, and he simply says the things that he thinks in these really crude um, ways that are not at all characteristic of our politics. Um, I'd hoped that people would pick up on that and say, man, I mean, this is, this is strange. That is an idea that I dislike. Um, but it is still the case, it seems, that most people um, who object to Donald Trump are fundamentally objecting to him as a person who they believe is sort of Voldemort-like. Um, and they have not yet embraced the notion of, uh, of the cult of the presidency as the fundamental problem. Uh, hat tip to, to Gene Healy there. So. We have time for two more. Let's do Jonathan up here and then in the back right there. Do you, Emily, do you have time trends on any of these questions? And if so, what do they show? Oh. For a few of them, we have time trends, but not a lot. The one time trend that I can cite comes from the um, UCLA freshman survey. So this is where I think it's UCLA, and uh, it's a consortium with a variety of different universities. They survey freshmen and then uh, follow them throughout uh, their college career, and they did see kind of a spike um, between, let's see, 2006 to 2012 in the percentage of students who thought um, campuses should cancel offensive speakers um, on their ca college campuses. So when it comes to time trends, we do see something there. For the other questions, I don't think we have a lot of trend data on that. I'm Michael. My name is Michael Myers, Michael Bogart Myers. I'm the executive director of the New York Civil Rights Coalition. I want to ask the panel about, for years, decades, really, people on talk radio and or TV as well, who are talk show hosts, have been complaining that um, people are pressuring their advertisers in terms of anti-free speech, not because they are hateful or saying, uh, racist things, but because people don't like their ideas, they consider their speech to be polarizing. And therefore, and some people have gotten off the air because of pressures from advertisers. So my question to you is, is there evidence on the other side?
for example, I think it was the man in the middle who said that the ACLU has changed its position on free speech, which is shocking to me. Is it possible? Is there any evidence? Is anybody doing any studies that their donors, their foundations, such as Ford, such as Soros, who are so into race stuff now, maybe they're pressuring the liberal institutions. Um, maybe they're getting them to stop their free speech um, efforts uh, in a principled manner because they don't like what they don't like. They say you defending free speech. Is there any evidence, any anything, any study going on about the liberal side, the Ford Foundation side, the Soros side funding anti-speech efforts? I haven't looked at that. I don't know. I mean, the ACLU certainly took a tremendous financial hit after the famous Skokie case that people look back on now uh, as a kind of rallying cry for why the ACLU is principled. But it was tremendously difficult. It was tremendously difficult financially, and. Um, Certainly, there is division within the staff of the ACLU in California and rifts between certain ACLU offices and the national organization where um, there are intense discussions about whether they ought to be taking cases from uh, Nazis from the Ku Klux Klan um, at this moment. The kind of compromise position that they staked out among their own coalition was that maybe they were going to back off when there was open carry going on. And, and I think that there's still discussion about that. Um, but there's definitely intellectual pressure within the ACLU's core coalition. And there's also donor pressure. I, I don't know about the, um, I don't know about George Soros and the Ford Foundation, uh, but the ACLU certainly positioned itself right after Trump's election as part of the resistance and got a tremendous financial windfall. And there's certainly tension within those donors about protecting the speakers of the kind you saw in Charlottesville. So it's definitely going on. Thank you very much. Anyone else wanted to? I'm not aware of major foundations being directly involved in the censoring of speech. Uh, and I would be very surprised if it was out there. There is a controversy around the uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, and uh, whether some elements of that movement, which uh, seeks to uh, uh, weaken support uh, for Israel and boycott uh, uh, those who support Israel, whether some groups in that movement are getting foundation money and whether the foundations know exactly what they're supporting. It's a complex issue. It's the only one, uh, though, that I've heard of where there's uh, controversies about major foundations. Could, at certain moments, the foundations be more forthright in their support, both rhetorical and material, in terms of free speech? And don't some of the campus issues that Emily has talked about cry out for the kind of intervention that we've seen major foundations play in other issues? I would argue yes. Well, I wanted to thank every, um, each of, the, of our panelists for joining us today. Um, thank you.